Do we have the courage as a sector? Do we have the courage as nonprofit leaders to embrace this technology responsibly, ethically, and to make the changes so we can move ahead and work in a way that is energizing for people on our staff, but also at the same time, building those great relationships with donors and then also bringing in the money. Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Beth Cantor is an international thought leader on digital transformation and well-being in the nonprofit workplace. Named one of the most influential women in technology by Fast Company, she is the co-author of The Network Nonprofit, the Happy Healthy Nonprofit, and the Smart Nonprofit, the voice behind her popular long-running Beth's blog, and a consultant and trainer to leading grantmakers and nonprofits around the world. She recently received the Lifetime Achievement Award from N10. In this episode, we speak with Beth about her life and work, beginning with her days as a flute student unafraid to knock on the door of an admired musical giant. You really got your start, at least in the adult part of your life with music. Where does that start for you? You know, I think it was from just really having an appreciation of listening to music on records. And mm-hmm. my parents uh, listened to classical music and opera. And I, that's kind of what I grew up listening to. And also just the discipline of practice every day um, on the flute. And I just, um, and then being open to lots of different types of music other than classical. We were just talking about Japan. (laughs) And um, I think one of my inspirations uh, was the shakuhachi flute. So I used to listen to a lot of that type of music. And I used to practice a lot of the deep breathing and tones uh, to get my tone (laughs) better. Um, and I, I had the luck of um, studying with Marcel Moise, um, who is, if you were in the flute world, you know of him. He's the, the grandfather of, of, of flute instruction and, and playing. Uh, he played in the Paris Opera. He was the first one, he, he um, played the first one to play the solo in Daphnis and Chloe. And, um, and I was going to school in Vermont and I found out he was living on top of a mountain in Vermont, just, you know, 30 miles away. So I, I drove there. Well, Went up the mountain, knocked on his door, uh, you know, 18, 19 years old. and said, I want to study with you, Mr. Moyes. And he said, get out of here. <laughs> You're too young. <laughs> you haven't lived. And so I came back the next day and he kicked me out again. And then the third day he said, I guess you really want to study with me. Um, and so he said, what do you got for me? Play something. And this, he was in his late 80s at this point, And he spoke like this. And um, I, pl- I had the audacity to play a Debussy um, piece, um, Syrinx. And then he said to me, you are not old enough to play this. You haven't lived enough. (laughs) You have to put your life experience into this. And he was not about technique. He was really about like expression and and learning how to interpret the music. And every piece we did, there was some story or some connection and it was a whole sense of history. So I feel really lucky that I had this chance to um, study with him later, later in his life. That, uh, component about not just about technique, but about the, the human component. I have a feeling that's throughout all of your work. I mean, you talk about that all the time with human centered technology, even now. Um, so it's interesting that you found him and then you found uh, a person who was thinking about music in that way, not technical, but really emotive 
and that was so meaningful to you. It, it, now, you were doing that for quite a while. You studied flute throughout college and I guess a master's, correct? Uh, well, you know, that's when I went for that. And my whole goal was to be uh, sit first flute in the New York Philharmonic, uh, another audacious, bold, audacious goal. But of course, in, you know, the, the, uh, at that point, and it's probably still the case, um, uh, conservatories and music schools were turning out thousands of flutists and there was a job opening and there was very few in the classical world, you know, 500 would show up. And so I realized pretty quickly that this is not going to be a way that I'm probably going to make a living. Um, and, uh, and my music teacher at the time, um, Paige, um, uh, he was the second flute in the New York Philharmonic. He said, you know, you seem to be really organized. Um, why don't you check out the business end of things? And so this was another <laughs> example where I started to knock on doors um, and I uh, had an opportunity to interview a bunch of different general managers uh, of different of the larger um, uh, orchestras in the country. And I went to Philadelphia and I interviewed Cy Rosen, uh, who was the general manager then. I said, Mr. Rosen, I want to be general manager of a big orchestra just like you. What do I need to learn? Um, and he looked at me and he said, learn how to type, honey. <laughs> Okay, so I took that information and I took my metronome and I started lento slowly typing and I got it all the way up to presto <laughs> so I could type like 140 words a minute accurately and I got my first administrative job at the Boston Symphony in the fundraising department because of my typing skills. <laughs> That's really fast because I'm, you know, around 90 and I thought that was fast. That's fast. You didn't well, play maybe, I, maybe I'm exaggerating, but I was really fast and I did it by, you know, applying my music discipline skills, <laughs> practice skills. Right. Uh, so, OK, so then you did, you went over to the Boston and uh, that's that's a pretty heady place, too. So what was it like working in the development office back then? Well, again, I was like the new kid there, you know, and uh, the thing that I remember is that I I got to learn all different. It was a still it was a large shop for back in those days in the early 80s. Today, it's way bigger, I imagine. But I got to learn all the different components of development, major gifts, uh, membership, uh, research, all of that. And I remember that um, that they had gotten computers <laughs> and it just sat there and everybody was trying to use the Wang word processor. Remember those with those oh, yeah. big. And so I, I said, OK, I'm going to learn how to use this IBM. And I think it was an early model. I can't remember which. And I started learning that. And that was sort of my first introduction to tech back in the early 80s um, to, to use Lotus Spreadsheet. <laughs> you remember that? Oh, wow. And WordStar. Sure. Um, uh, um, and, nobody and I got more time and, and no, but there was no line in front of it. <laughs> right. No one else was using it. So that was that's kind of interesting. I wonder, as a person new to development, what your thought was as you looked at this, you know, this this opportunity here and people weren't taking advantage of it. What did that say to you? I, I was thinking, wow, this is really great. I'm getting a lot done and I don't have to wait. You know, there was a lot of people trying to get at the Wang to get their, uh, you know, and it was way faster than the IBM Selectric. Remember the memory typewriters? I don't know. Yeah, probably we're dating ourselves here um, with appeals where you it would do the dear so-and-so and, -so and you bring it out and then you would sign it and write the PS and the personal note to it. <laughs> I know I do also remember signing Sigi Ozawa's name. I probably should reveal that. Um, but we used to sign his name and um, uh, 
or and that's how they personalize the the appeals sure sure with real ink yes yeah <laughs> um, so not just photocopies so there you were interacting with the, the you know state of the art technology at the time and um I, and I'm sure that that made an impression on you. So in terms of getting things done, it already sounds like, as you said, that you were a person who would get things done. You knock on doors, you, you, know, you, you were well organized. Uh, did you start to have in your mind what the role of tech would be, even in that kind of you know, very early stage for nonprofits? It uh, I, I guess so. Probably not that well developed, but I uh, just became a, a little bit obsessed with um, computers. And then my next job was to be general manager of a, of a small chamber orchestra. And I, I did get a, it was called a leading edge <laughs> and it used Windows 3.1. And I was able to, um, instead of having everything on the file cards, you know, the subscribers and the donors' names, was able to put that in and have a, a little mini database, which was just really efficient. Yeah, really uh, a big, big change for an organization that relies on its ticket buyers or subscribers or friends or um, so the relationship to audience really driven or facilitated by technology. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, when, when you're kind of making this journey, and that was just a few years, just in the beginning of your career, but um, you were still close to the arts. And, you, and soon after that, you kind of made a big departure. But I know you did some time in non, kind of general nonprofit and arts consulting at that point. How did that materialize? And why was well, that? Well, that's uh, that's when I this is late 80s. Yeah, mm -hmm. late 80s kind of dis, um, discovered bulletin boards. I don't know if you were a BBSer. And 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 uh, and that was just amazing to me. Um, and then through that, I found my way to the New York Foundation for the Arts and their ArtsWire project, which was an early online um, uh, implementation of the internet. And I just went; it blew my mind <laughs> when I saw email, and it was only text-based at that point, and Telnet, <laughs> and all, and Unix, and it was just amazing to me that you could connect with people based on your interest who you didn't even know or hadn't even met in person and um, and just saw all the possibilities of that. We were a little bit too early with ArtsWire. Um, people weren't yet adopting, but it put me, it gave me a front row seat. And I learned how to code, do HTML code. And that was before the books came out. And I remember finding a cheat sheet on ZDNet, um, Ziff Davis <laughs> magazine. One of the reporters had created a little cheat sheet and I was able to start coding. And I just, at that point I was running around to arts organizations telling me you need to get on the web. The what, <laughs> why? You need email, what? I have a fax machine, what do I need that for? And I can always FedEx my application to the NEA, you know, what do we need this for? And then it kind of exploded and people started paying attention and people, you know, developed their 1.0 websites. And I was sort of on ground zero of that. So, it, so I've sort of always have been, you know, working with nonprofits and technology as the technology is starting to to become mainstreamed. Yeah, and and that the um, hesitation sometimes to adopt in the arts wasn't unique to the arts sector. No, it's not. It's I think we see that a lot in um, with nonprofits. Um, you know, we're not, I mean, there's always a few early adopters, right? The innovators, but I think a lot, there's a lot of laggards 
And I'll give you an example recently. I We did a, a webinar recently with um, uh, uh, major gifts officers um, and uh, researchers. And what we asked a, um, a survey at the beginning, we did a poll, you know, and it was about chat GPT, you know, you know, uh, it was, are you, you know, I don't plan to use, I'm thinking about using, but I haven't gotten to it yet. I'm, I've tried a few experiments with my work. It's fully integrated. 2% said fully integrated and the rest were spread one third, one third, one third. And I was kind of surprised given the amount of hype and, and you know, articles every day, every other day, scores of them about this. So people knew about it and hearing about the benefits, but not yet a lot of adoption. <laughs> if that's surprising to you after these other things you just described, that's saying something. Is that because things like ChatGPT and for that matter, AI and machine learning in general has, has been so quick to evolve? Or is, is, it, is the surprise because it seems so obvious that there'd be a benefit? I think it's a combination of both. And also, I think, you know, um, so, you know, there's the fear piece of it. Is this thing going to take my jobs? Um, and, and then there's kind of like, well, we're so busy doing what we've always done the way we've done it. And when this is going to involve change, that's always been the thing, right? People, you know, because change is hard, right? Is hard. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you make a change or you try a new habit or you're trying to learn something, it's, um, you know, it's cognitive overload until it becomes habitual and you don't have to think about it. So there is that pain in the initial change. Mm -hmm. And some people drop, uh, I just don't want to do that right now. They're, they're so overwhelmed. Um, so, so there's that. And I think, um, it's, it, I think we're, we just lag. <laughs> yeah. Maybe our industry is one of the, you know, the one that lags is one that lags. I don't know. Do you agree? <laughs> uh, well, it's, I don't know if we lag or not. It seems like um, we beyond behind uh, the commercial sector, but we certainly do seem to have trouble with change, even though we're all about change. I mean, if, 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 uh, Nonprofits and social sector organizations are about helping people. Then that's about making a change, but uh, but the, but adopting the tools for that change seem really difficult for us. Right, and it's maybe not so much about adopting the tools. It's it's the tools that really challenge our workflows. Mm -hmm. Right. I, you know, I, I know you've written about this also, especially with the happy, healthy nonprofit, among other things, um, because sometimes as we're adopting technologies or thinking about them or business process and it's relatively new it's it's also putting a pressure on people who are already overtaxed overwhelmed uh very busy like you talked about in the new book um and i i wonder where um you've been able as you talk with people today as a consultant you've been doing that for a long time now um how you get them comfortable with the idea of these changes whether those changes are a business process like this is how we're going to do it this is what people will do or whether it's actually a new tool set like that ibm sitting on that desk how do you help people make that uh adapt uh, adapt to those changes 
Um, you know, I really think it's um, an organizational approach and it's a leadership function. So it has to be led by by leaders. Um, and I think with what's going on now with chat GPT and all the kind of hype around, oh, we're going to lose our jobs. It's going to eat all of our jobs. Killer robots are going to destroy the world. I think leaders need to step forward and kind of make assurances about like uh, and be transparent about how they're going to use it and maybe make a pledge that nobody's going to be laid off because of chat. At GPT um, uh, and assure them, and and to also I think uh, think about re the retraining that might be needed. So it needs to be something that is you know leadership driven and becomes uh, and it's something that's organizational. And I think also um, at an individual letter level, we have like we're frozen in a way, right? Of we because we've done it. The neurons have dug deep past in the way that we do things, and we have to like unfreeze that and then relearn. Um, and it, it, it is, um, it, it's a leadership piece and it's also a training and retraining piece. And then a lot of patience. It, it, leaders seem like those who are most challenged by this kind of adaptation, uh, at least traditionally, especially when it involves technology, even if the tech, even if they aren't necessarily directly involved in the tech itself, the idea of leading people for its use um, seems really challenging. I, you know, I wonder why that is and how you've worked with leaders so they can get their head in the right place to help people who might be younger uh, or more adept at adopting these technologies, but they still need the leader to play this important role in mobilizing and, and uh, motivating. Yeah, I think it starts with um, education and maybe talking to their peers. <laughs> so there's like a peer education piece. Right. There's learning about it. There's, you know, resisting the temptation to send it down the hall to the IT people and really dig in. And that's what, you know, that if you read the articles that are being written now in, in you know, in management areas, that this technology is one that leaders really need to wrap um, their hands around and dig in because it's going to have more business implications than we've had in the past, right? And it's really going to have an influence on strategy. And they really need to dig in to really understand it and just not send it down the hall. I, you know, there's a phrase that I mean, Allison loves to say, and I'll say it, is that you need to get your hands on uh, you know, artificial intelligence before it gets its hands on you. Oh, that's a great line. And that's, okay, that's Alison Fine, who's been a co-author with you on now, is it two books or three books or? Uh, two books and numerous studies and articles. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I did want to ask you how you came to start working with her. A lot of people who are authors de delving into this kind of stuff, it they, they do it solo. You've made a decision to partner with, an, with a colleague in the field across the country and share ideas and, and move forward. How did that partnership develop? Well, I'm, all of my books I've written in partnership with other people, because writing, for me, writing alone is not fun, but writing with other people is is wonderful. And and Allison has been a wonderful thought partner for the last 15 years. And we have we have complementary strengths and, weakness, and um, different weaknesses, which is a great, and we have a lack of ego. <laughs> And we're both very open. And um, and how it started was I was, if you remember, I was one of the first to uh, have a start a nonprofit blog. I'm still blogging. That was like 20 years ago. And a couple of years into it, she approached me with her, I think it was her first book. Maybe it was her second. Um, I'm blanking on the name. 
Um, but she came and said, will you review my book? And I said, of course. So, um, and from there we became, you know, we started to, you know, we connected, we developed a professional relationship and we actually worked on a couple of social media fundraising studies early on, I think for the Case Foundation um, to do the evaluation of the America's Giving Challenge way back in the day, 2006, 2007. Mm -hmm. And then um, it was like, we should write a book about this. <laughs> and this was early social media days, 2007, 2008-ish. I think we published in 2009 when we wrote the network nonprofit. And the way, you know, we've collaborated. She's, um, I'm the sort of structured, more organized, linear type of person because of my music training, but I can also get creative. Um, and Alice is very, very creative and, and, and really gifted at framing things in a great way. Um, and I was the storyteller collector. Um, and so we would always, we have a very organic kind of process, um, but it works. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like in each case, you're bringing down a tremendous amount of information, including studies and uh, allusions to other things. There are lots of footnotes in your latest book, for example, and then broiling it down to these stories, as you said, that help to frame what it is that's important. And then finally encapsulating it, like you just said, in a phrase like hers. And But you've done that yourself. I mean, maybe, maybe it's hers, but you've said things like, one that I found fascinating, which is that it would be a fool's errand to believe that we will return to an early 20th century form of privacy. And and when I read that, there were a lot of things that were memorable and quotable in your in your work. But that one struck me in particular because I thought, even if that's true, then that presupposes we have a new definition. It's either evolving or that you have in mind. Can you talk about privacy a little bit? Because throughout this entire career you've had and what you're working on now, um, this idea about who owns the data uh, and, uh, or, who, or I should say, do we own our own data is really important, especially as we look at AI. Can you talk a little bit about privacy, the way you see it has changed and then where you see it going? Well, I'll go back to, the, I think it started to change with social media and the internet a little bit and really with social media. Um, and I think it started with the, uh, you know, it used to be in our lives that we, you know, if you have the Venn diagram, we had private and public, <laughs> personal and professional, right? And we had really strict boundaries between those. And the internet kind of blurred that. Um, you know, remember when, you know, sharing things on Twitter, uh, would we ever share publicly that, you know, I love to walk <laughs> and share pictures of our walk, you know, that would have been before the internet, that would, you wouldn't do that, right? You would be always about work, always professional, but the internet kind of broke down those ba um, barriers and those boundaries. And it even became more so, I think, with social media. And then as the world became more digital and we have to input information to like buy things, <laughs> for example, or, or even our healthcare, that's where, you know, our data is floating around there and we don't, you know, you know, we need to have the right to be forgotten, if you will. And we really need to think about um, privacy in, in that way, especially with our um, data. I mean, there's some people who advocate, I'm thinking about Lucy Bernholtz, that we should get paid for sharing our data, right? If we opt in, we should get paid for that. We're giving you something that you're going to make money off of. Facebook should be paying us. <laughs> Well, it seems like it's been exactly the opposite. And I don't know that that's changing because that's the same discussion we're having about TikTok beyond its right. And it'll be the same discussion we're having with um, generative AI and, and the use of AI as well. So I think that's an area that's just with this technology is it, it, it's a skill, it's a competency, it's a 
uh, a leadership <laughs> idea that you need to know about um, in, in this day and age. And that goes back again to a couple of these themes that are emerging even in this brief conversation. So one is about leadership and the other one is about AI. And you just referenced generative AI, which I know is a big, uh, a big area for you. And you've focused on it for a number of years. Before ChatGPT was, uh, you know, a thought in anybody's head, you were writing about this and in partnership with others like Allison about this. Um, I'd like to know when that interest developed for you, when you first kind of encountered it in your world, and then if you could talk about the way you see it developing and maybe some of the risks and rewards, especially. Uh, um, sure. So I think we wrote our first article together around in 2017, and that came out of a discussion with how I think it was just after um, one of the not the first, but one of the uh, Facebook scandals with use of our data. If you remember, I was a group that was in the UK. Cambridge Analytica. Yes, yes. So it was right around, I think that was 2017, 2018, right. maybe. It was just, right, just right. after the election and just when all of that was starting to be exposed and a lot of us were starting. I was just feeling like I don't, that's when I deleted my Facebook page. My really? or I had a Facebook is or a business page yeah. which had quite big following and I, I deleted that. I kept my personal one. <laughs> like and I also deleted I had um I don't engage. I didn't delete it. Um my my Twitter following, which was quite quite huge. I started feeling like, how did I get sucked into saying being embarrassed about being a social media advocate in a way? And how was I so naive to think that it was all social media for good, right? Um, that, you know, there is social media for evil and feeling like, ugh, you know, and, and we were talking about this and we were talking about, well, what's the next thing that's, you know, coming? And we started to see like, okay, artificial intelligence, it's been still hypothetical, right? It's still at, the, at that time, the cost was really only available to large organizations like NASA, um, and maybe to some nonprofits, larger international development nonprofits and hospitals through kind of partnerships for AI for good. We started, let's, let's dig into this and see where it's going. Mm -hmm. And so we wrote, wrote our first couple of articles and also we're both science fiction fans. So we thought it was, oh, an excuse to talk about robots and <laughs> our science fiction <laughs> references. I remember our first presentation, meticulously researching and finding a clip from Danger, Will Robinson <laughs> um, on YouTube. And we used that, we did it like a robot quiz. That was like 2017. And I found, you know, how, I mean, how could you not? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I sort of went down that rabbit hole. And then, um, of course, we realized that that is kind of a narrative that has been put out there, that the evil robots are coming to kill us um, um, more recently. So that's how it kind of evolved. And then we um, got a, a, a grant to do a research study from the, the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation. Uh, it's called AIforgiving.org with the four, the number four. Um, to take a look at how is it being integrated into platforms. And this was 2019 to 20 and uh, into 2020. It was kind of a early pandemic project. <laughs> Later pandemic project was the smart nonprofit. And at that time it was just still emerging yeah. in terms yeah. of like the nonprofit giving platforms. And now, it, of course, it's gotten much bigger. So yeah. that's where it started. It's kind of like what we have a reputation for kind of spotting the emerging tech early and, and seeing what the implications are on nonprofits. And so while we were disillusioned by sort of social media and thinking about what's next, that's where it happened. You said that you left um, 
Facebook, at least the business page. And then you, you kind of went into hibernation and maybe as a word for it on Twitter, um, because you're still there, uh, but, but not posting actively. Um, you are active still on LinkedIn. I know it's a different kind of environment, but what, how did you make those choices? And are you advocating for other people making those same kinds of considerations? Um, I think it was mostly a personal choice. Um, I, I was just fed up and I, and I, and it was more about, I don't want to give Facebook my money to advertise, to get more people. It's when organic reach on Facebook started to plummet and I've had enough of this, so I'm not going to support you with my money. And I'm sort of in a way, okay, personally. Yeah. And I was, became a little bit more careful about the information I was sharing, um, on uh, social media. And when uh, Musk took over Twitter and laid off people and all of that started, I just said, F you. (laughs) But the reason I didn't delete my account, and I have like half a million followers there, is that I didn't want someone to just take my domain name, you know, at Cantor and start impersonating me. So Mm -hmm. I figure I'll just keep it there and point people over to LinkedIn. And occasionally I dip in and I'll look and see if somebody's retweeted something or mentioned my name, I might go like it, but I don't invest or waste my time there. Uh, I'm all in on LinkedIn now. And I've been on LinkedIn for 20 years. I I got there like soon after it opened. So I have a fairly extensive network there. And I found that since the Twitter thing happened, network uh, LinkedIn has gotten my way better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that. I also see some things that are more on the personal side, not always, not always professional, but it is more active. There's a lot more active engagement there. Um, you just mentioned this huge following you have. And I know that people probably wonder, well, how in the world can I have a huge following? That was the old question. I'm not sure it's the question today. But I know that there were instances that really helped you to kind of blow up. Um, and one was this whole thing with the red hat. Do you mind telling that story for those who haven't heard it about how you suddenly <laughs> built this enormous following? Um. Uh, so you've heard of Conan O'Brien, right? <laughs> yes, of course. Okay, so Conan O'Brien, this was 2014. Uh, he did this whole monologue uh, about LinkedIn and how he wanted to be a LinkedIn influencer and how he was going to get to the top, right? And uh, in the monologue, he was making fun of people who were on the influencer list. And I was on the influencer list and I was sort of up there. Um, not quite as much as um, uh, Bill Gates, but close. Um <laughs> And, and he said, and then there's this woman, Beth Cantor, with a hat she borrowed from Macho Man Randy, somebody or other who's a oh, wrestler. Oh, Macho Man Randy Savage. Yeah. Yes. I had to look that up because I, I didn't know about that. And all of a sudden, my phone started to blow up with, te- hey, Conor O'Brien's coming after you. <laughs> And so basically what he did is he said, I can get, you know, I'm going to get, I'm out to get a, you know, millions of followers on LinkedIn. First, I'm going to put, um, dress myself like I'm going clubbing in, in Berlin on his profile, but then I'm going to get a red hat. But not only am I going to get a red hat, I'm going to uh, stand, um, I'm going to get a red um, hat and stand next to Bill Clinton, Obama, <laughs> um, Teddy Roosevelt, and, and another president on the palm of the Pope. So, uh, uh, and they're all going to be wearing red hats. So, so I, I use that as kind of my trademark. And I used to tell that story actually, that it's not, it's not about the number of followers that you have on social media. It's really about building relationships, um, and, and connecting with people that it's not about numbers. Numbers do help though. 
I mean, if you're if you're engaging actively with people and you're engaging with more of them, there must be a benefit to that. I mean, I'm thinking about what the nonprofits might be thinking as you're telling the story. It has value in and of itself, but they're probably still thinking if I just had a few more people who were paying attention. Well, that's more important than having a lot of people following you. Um, and there are studies that show that smaller networks are more engaged and robust um, and are more willing to share information to get, to leverage that network effect. So, so one might have this big following and might get views, but uh, in terms of engagement, not all of them are engaging. And that's where you get other people mentioning it. Um, part of the reason for even asking about that is not only so people can understand how these things happen, but also how they are changing. Because everything you just described, that wouldn't have been possible when, I guess, when we started our careers. I mean, there was no platform by which we would have suddenly had, uh, in your case, a half a million people following you virtually overnight. And uh, it, it, unless you were, I don't know, on a stage somewhere and you had a lot of people buying tickets to something, I don't know what the equivalent would have been. Yeah, or celebrity. And also, it's it's kind of like the benefit of being an early adopter. Hmm. Right. Um, so there are some benefits to being you can leverage the technology before it becomes mainstream adopted. Right. And it's harder to do it once there's more people using the platform. Sure. And I wonder if maybe that's a part of this the thread in this story, too, because like you said, when you begin your career there, you were using the machines that were in the office that were kind of ignored by others. And then you just kept doing your thing and learning things that were new and then using what was beneficial and probably ignoring the things that weren't or letting them fall to the side. Is that same kind of thing true with respect to AI now? Because in other words, is it still early? Can people still adopt and adopt responsibly? Um, well, I think we're still early because I think we're in, if you uh, are familiar with the uh, Gartner curve of technology adoption, Talk, talk about that. Okay, so there's different phases that every technology goes through, and it's a curve that looks kind of like this. <laughs> and wait, I'm not doing it there, but <laughs> well, for those who can't but, see, it's a pretty it, sharp curve. That's right. Well, it goes up, but then it goes. It's the hockey stick, and then it yes. goes down. Yes. And it's called uh, first early adopters come, and there's the moment where it becomes kind of it's proven, and then no. it's the height of un, uh, of inflated expectations. That's this phase I think we're in now with the, where there's all this hype and people are paying attention to it. People are starting to adopt it. Um, and then there is the trough of disillusionment. <laughs> oh, it's not going to save the world. It's not all great. And people start to drop off from it. And then it comes back to kind of like normalization when it becomes boring, as Clay Shirky used to say. So I think we're still in this kind of peak of inflated expectations when it comes to chat GPT. And a lot of the early adopters are probably making, are making, there's a lot of probably investment in startups right now. And those that are adopting early are probably, you read stories about how this person's <laughs> able to work a four hour work week because they're using chat GPT and they're hiding it from their boss because they don't want to lose their job or they're able to work three jobs because of chat GPT or the, the ones that are like providing courses are probably doing well, right? So there's early adopters can, you know, leverage it, but then there's a point where we'll reach that, where it starts to come down. Okay. Um, I'm waiting to see if that's gonna happen <laughs> and how it's gonna happen, Right. you know? Um, yeah, I wonder if this, if this, in this case, the hockey stick is a lot taller or not. It is, when you look at some of the, um, 
uh, if you've, I don't know if you've seen that chart that uh, that there's the um, that the holy grail of metrics in Silicon Valley for tech is 100 million active users, oh. and it took something like 20 days for ChatGPT to get there, where it took several months for something like TikTok to get there. Yeah. So that's like the, the so they're talking about double exponential growth in terms of adoption rates. And when I started to read all that stuff, okay, well, let's see what's happening in the nonprofit sector. And I think I mentioned to you before that it, I was, I was sort of, oh yeah, we're a little bit behind that. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a hype here happening. So a lot of people talking about it, probably experimenting with the free version, um, but or also even the probably, paid version for 20 bucks. Right. Um, and, and, and I'm also using it probably not even being aware they're using it through other platforms, right? Yeah, and more and more that's gonna happen because uh, uh, when uh, it's gonna be integrated into the Microsoft products coming coming to uh, and Bing already and right. coming to, and Google products as well. I mean, it's already to some extent, you know, if you use Gmail and there's the predictive text, but now it's gonna be able to like understand your context a little bit more than just uh, predict words or phrases. Um, hey, you seem to, you need to like remind you to, to send an email to somebody because it's seen your calendar and you're going to have a meeting coming up and I haven't seen the, um, the, the reminder go out yet. <laughs> right. And some of those are being built into standalone platforms that you're, that people are being urged to purchase to get a monthly subscription to so they can manage their time. But right. Agents, intelligent agents. Yes. Yeah, sitting on top of this, this platform. Um, the people you just mentioned uh, the the companies so it's you know with uh, Microsoft for example um, or Google uh, which I think you mentioned earlier in another context they've been some of the very people to to shout warnings about um, AI in general um, and this all follows that letter uh, that I guess Musk was a part of saying that there should be a, a, a you know a, a temporary halt to development of AI. Um, that was out a couple of months ago uh, for a six month period as these things reviewed. And even the Commerce Department, I think in Capitol Hill, they're talking about reviewing um, whether there should be rules in place for use of AI. And UK's prime minister just came over and was talking to uh, Joe Biden about this in the last few weeks. He was um, here in Silicon Valley talking with Silicon leaders just uh, last Oh, week. I didn't know that. Okay. Um, did he do that before or after he'd met? With I'm, not sure, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of scary things, right? If you read, you know, AI being used for weapons and nuclear nuclear weapons and all of that. And it's kind of scary because when you think about how government's kind of been behind the tech <laughs> in terms right. of regulation and understanding it, you know, case in point, Facebook, um, uh, TikTok. So that is, you know, scary in, in, in some sense, some senses. But I think like in the nonprofit sector that we just, we can't let that distract us in a way. I think the point is now that we need to, if we're, you know, we need to embrace this technology. It's here, the genie's out of the bottle. There are some really potential, really great benefits to fundraising and other areas of nonprofit work, but we need to implement it responsibly um, and ethically. And that means, you know, getting around the privacy, understanding the privacy issues, doing no harm, <laughs> um, uh, understanding the bias and um, algorithmic discrimination that can be embedded in some of these products, um, alleviating fears and people, you know, 
you know, potentially being laid off or, or killing off their jobs. I really think that, I mean, the case in point recently, I'm sure you're aware of it, is uh, the National Eating Disorders Association mm-hmm. bought TESA. Did you, maybe you were in Japan when it was pretty widely covered. Um, so the National Eating Disorders Association, known as NIDA, it's the largest organization that was providing support to people with eating disorders, and it had a hotline, man with humans, personed with humans, to provide advice when people were reaching out for advice. And uh, I don't know if you know anything uh, about eating disorders, Jay, but if you are alone, you are more vulnerable to that. Um, uh, uh, it's a it's a mental health challenge. Um, and so, of course, because of the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, uh, they were completely inundated with calls. And they had like 200 volunteers, you know, four or five employees that staff that helpline, and they were unable to keep up with it, the demand. And they went to leadership and they said, we need more staffing. Um, to, to be able to uh, address this. And what leadership did was unveil this new chatbot to put it on the and put it on the front line and promptly gave um, pink slips to that staff because they because uh, when they asked for help, they were ignored and they started to organize into a union. Um, so there were some rep- media reports that it was a union busting strategy. But even worse, um, that chatbot uh, leadership really didn't understand what it could or couldn't do. And it was actually dispensing potentially harmful advice to people with eating disorders, talking about healthy weight and dieting, which you don't do with eating disorders. So it was taken offline. And um, so, and that was like when we were writing the book, Allison, I said, what's the worst case nightmare scenario that could happen? Oh, it's somebody that's thinking about um, using this tech as a cheap replacement for staff and then doesn't thoroughly test it (laughs) and it ends up doing some sort of harm. So we need to lead with our ethics and our values and we need to have, you know, even I know that you are working on uh, fundraising wide ethical standards, but also within organizations, there needs to be statements and there needs to be not just check a box. We have our policy, yay, but to really under for leaders to really dig in and understand the implications of this technology. Um, It strikes me that when when you talk about this, the issue of transparency doesn't get discussed a lot in our sector. And developing a policy on anything would seem to benefit from being able to disclose it to the world, whether it's who's supporting our organizations or how we deal with data, or in this case, how we provide the service. Are we using tech in in these ways? And if it's beneficial, of course, talking about that. But um, do you have thoughts on that as we we rocket forward towards a far more, quote, efficient, you're not saying that, that's not your quote, but efficient form of doing business as nonprofits because of AI, do we have a greater responsibility, not just within our organizations, hopefully to our employees first, not to get them pink slips, but to the community as a whole to be more transparent about everything, including our use of technology? Absolutely. Um, And I think transparency starts from within. And that starts with the leadership, again, assuring people (laughs) that they will approach this in a human centered way. Because, you know, while, you know, some, you know, some jobs may be lost, right? Um, They're talking about paralegals, (laughs) you know, some writing jobs, maybe. Um, I've seen uh, reports about copy editors losing their jobs or whatever. Um, But I think that they're not all parts of a fundraiser job a job can be automated, right? Um, who's going to take the, the prospects out to lunch, right? 
the, the chatbot? <laughs> no. Uh, and, and, you know, Allison and I like to talk about, and we talk about it in the book, is a co-botting model where the technology does what it does best and, you know, gets those efficiency gains, removes the kind of grunt work from our jobs, um, maybe does a first draft of thank you notes or uh, appeals or customizes them. And humans do what they do best. We have human judgment, creativity, empathy, and that relationship building, which is so important. So that human-centered piece, and it's in the tagline of our book, is I think that's how we need to lead because it's a it's a chance to kind of like uh, really affirm and evaluate what it is to be human in this world, right? Um, and that's that comes first. And that also means not looking at this technology as a cheap replacement for staff. Right. Um, and that's that's concerning because we've seen over the last couple of decades that when we have a, a tool set that helps us to be more efficient or maybe not hire a person, or we think we can push a button and get the information, that that doesn't necessarily then free, even if it should free up our time to become more empathetic, more engaged with other people on a human level, it doesn't always seem to do that. I think about the digital receding in our organizations instead of thank you notes. And then there's been this debate in our sector about whether or not thank you notes are even a thing we should be doing, or that's coddling donors, for example. But it's, I wonder if maybe one of the issues here is getting is a, is a reset button for nonprofits. So they do what you're talking about, being human-centered, using AI as a, as a way to help facilitate that, but making a decision to be human-centered. That's what, to a degree what you're advocating. How can we ensure that organizations don't just you know, say, well, I just want the money. And so they start treating us like people. Right. Or ATM, treat donors like ATM machines, which is a quote from our network nonprofit. So the, uh, this the gener a artificial intelligence, generative AI, and whatever's coming next, and it's a little scary there too, but um, has this great opportunity for us. It's a new to reinvent nonprofit work and make it more human. So this next chapter of work, and we can maybe stop being so busy, stop burning people out, stop you know that turnover of staff, stop having fundraisers crying in the closet, right? Um, and, and maybe open this up to a better way of working, maybe embrace a four-day work week. Um, it, I don't think we need, I don't think we wanna approach this technology to have us do more faster. You know, think I think about the I Love Lucy scene where they're in the chocolate factory and they're yeah. just going faster. We're not, I don't, I, so I don't think efficiency is the only benefit. It's the effectiveness and the ability to, to develop relationships. So that means it becomes a leadership problem. Again, a leadership challenge. And so I have to ask, do we have the courage to change? Do we have the courage to become more human-centered, both internally and to make you know, uh, the work experience better for people um, and have them do the work um, that they got in the sector to do. Um, and then externally with our donors, with our the, the people we're serving to really build those relationships and to treat them well and not treat them like ATM machines. You said something a minute ago also. Um, you said, what's next is scary. What's next? <laughs> Well, these are just, you know, of course, looking at like where this technology may be going, a couple of things. Um, okay, so right now, this is on the, okay, if we're going to embrace things like chat GPT, you have to have um, prompt engineering skills, right? 
to learn how to ask it the right questions and to evaluate the answers. And so, it because we know it hallucinates, right? It, 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 it's, you know, so you really have to fact check it. Um, and it's this kind of tedious kind of ask it a question, you know, back and forth. But what's going to happen is that the models will become, uh, will have a sense that'll be integrated more. So you don't have to do a lot of that back and forth. It'll have a better understanding of your context, um, which means then the skill is not so much prompt engineering, but probably problem formation. And that's a real human skill, the ability to frame and understand what the problem is. And there's not enough training around that in our workplaces because we're, we're so focused on problem solutions, right? Lead with solutions. So that's one piece that's coming. Who knows how fast? Um, I, I read someplace where some of the big tech companies are testing those types of models now. Um, I also read uh, Charlene Lee wrote a piece a while back, I'd say about a month ago, about artificial empathy. <laughs> Um, and this is not necessarily, no, the, the, the technology can't really feel like a human, but it can mimic it. Right. And perhaps we can use that to get better at being human. Not, you know, and, and also you can see a little bit of how that works when, if you've ever um, gotten one of those automated you know, customer service lines. Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk to an agent. I have a problem with my <laughs> no, shoes, with my sneakers I just bought. Oh, I see. I'm sorry for that. Let me get you to the right person. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a computer generated voice mm -hmm. um, a, a program that's been trained to have, you know, to say empathetic phrases. It doesn't really feel empathetic. It no. doesn't understand empathy. It doesn't, it couldn't necessarily do it on demand unless it's been trained. So, so thinking about those sorts of things. Um, wow. That's, uh, it's interesting because I can imagine uh, that it also is a way to train people on how to be more empathetic if we train the machines correctly. But then that gets to the heart of bias conversation you had and which is in the book. And we probably don't have time to uncover here, but it's a huge component of this because humans have bias, that bias works its way into the algorithms, the algorithms then inform these uh, artificial agents. And uh, so unless we're really thoughtful about that. Um, well, going back to the NIDA example, where they, they replace the counselors or the people answering the, the hotline with the bot without any extensive testing, uh, the Trevor Project, which we, I think we talked about in the book, um, also has a hotline. It's for LGBTQ plus uh, youth in crisis to get support. And, um, and they uh, are actually using some of this technology, but they're not replacing the counselors with it because the counselors need to be trained in a particular method that's very human centered and it could potentially be dangerous you know for example uh if someone's calling in in crisis and the machine got it wrong right so they use this technology in a very controlled environment and they took their data set was actual transcripts of conversations stripped of all the privacy information so we didn't know that it was jay or beth saying things. Um, and they used it to as training simulations um, to train more counselors because the problem that they were trying to solve, similar to NIDA, was there was just too much demand for the current capacity. So if they could free up staff time from training volunteers and, and use this um, technology to help them be more efficient in that, they could train more humans to be on the front line. Yeah. That's, um, that's a wonderful example of something that organizations can do. They don't have to have the budget of IBM to do it. They could, they could implement the same kind of policy. Um, 
you were it's the use about, case, right? And it's the, the pledge to do, you know, when we say ethically and responsibly, do no harm. Right. Take your do no harm pledge. And what that means is slowing down. <laughs> Don't rush to implement. Um, and it needs it needs a lot of testing and oversight and monitoring. Well, and that's leadership too, right? I mean, if you absolutely it, because who else is going to say slow down? Exactly. Uh, okay. Or or else it's the it is maybe the tech team saying that to the leadership, but the leadership listens to it. It know? has to go both ways. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it, um, just as a branch question on that, so the the fundraising folks, the advancement team, whatever you want to call them, do they have a special responsibility in all this too? Because they're the ones who are going out and getting the money, and often they're under pressure to go and get more. And but it's probably a good idea for them to just slow down a little bit, just like we do in a capital campaign. Get to know the person, find out what their needs and interests are, find out if there's an actual marriage. So we're not doing everything for the donor. We're also not just doing everything for the money. It's truly human centered. If if that's true, does the development operation and its leadership have a special responsibility to talk to everybody from the board to the IT team and say, listen, slow down? Yeah, slow down and also um, uh, be trained <laughs> thoughtfully and not just like chat GPT skills, but it's also, and we saw, I saw it, you know, there's the benefit to the individual, right? So right now adoption's happening. I saw a study that I think it came from Pew, just released a study and Fishbowl. I don't know, Fishbowl has been studying kind of adoption in the workplace and that it's now up to 50% in corporate environments, and but it's concealed. People aren't telling their bosses that they're using it because either it's been banned or else they're afraid they might lose their job or their coworker's job, or they might be judged, right? And I don't think an organization really reaps the full benefit of this technology unless it's an organizational strategy. So it can't just be everybody, you know, somebody using it on the team, but it has to be, you know, team-wide or organizational-wide and needing to slow down to have, um, to do threat modeling, right? That's a horrible, scary term, but we, we mentioned it in the book. Threat modeling is just really brainstorming. What are all the potential ways this thing could go wrong? Right. And then having a test um, in a very controlled environment to see if that's going to happen and make adjustments before you put things out full blast on the, the front line. So right. having a threat modeling discussion, having a thoughtful discussion about like where is bias creeping in? I mean, there's a whole playbook um, from the Berkman Center. Um, and it's uh, all these different kind of activities and planning activities. Um, uh, that you can use to understand bias in your data or bias in your algorithm. So it's kind of a playbook. It's kind of like a, a brainstorming activities and discussion. It's also spending time on the use case, you know, not just saying, oh, just replace the, the counselors on the front line with it. It's really thinking about what, like, what is that exquisite pain point that we're trying to solve for and figuring that out, right? And that takes discussion. And slowing um, down. <laughs> now, you were talking about what's next, uh, being scary, and you just went through a whole bunch of stuff, actually, some of which is a great opportunity um, as well. But what's next for you? I mean, you're, you're going around, you're training people, you're writing books, but what's left undone for you? You do, you do a lot of things, but 
What's next for you? Well, it's you see the well, people can't see it, but um, my third book and my fourth book, the Happy Healthy Nonprofit and the Smart Nonprofit, I want to converge that piece, and I really want to look at what is the leadership playbook <laughs> to think about in terms of like let's think about the future and things are adopted, they're adopted responsibly, but what goes along with that is that people's jobs are going to change. Right. And I want to like look at what, what, how to, how can leaders navigate that? What's the upskilling they need to provide? How do job roles change? Um, and how do we go through that thoughtfully so that we're creating this really great work experience um, that is getting great results with the technology? And we're also treating our donors right, but really the internally, what do we need to do? Um, and a part of this is also, you know, um, making sure that they're adopting this technology and learning how to use it without increasing stress and burnout, which we know has been a problem. <laughs> and um, and this tool has the potential to help solve part of that problem, but only if we proceed slowly and thoughtfully in a very human-centered way. It sounds like you still have some hope here. I do. I just think we need the courage. We need the courage. I used that phrase before, and I'll, I'll tell you um, uh, my final parting word of this forgetting to that um, is, and I'll go back to the music, um, my musical training. Um, one of uh, early music school, I got to play first flute on, uh, in a, a performance of um, Beethoven's Third Symphony. I don't know if you're familiar with classical music, but there's a beautiful flute solo, I think, in the first movement. And in rehearsals, I was, I was a little nervous. And I came in a beat late and, you know, the conductor, if you've ever seen them, they tap on their music stand, he stopped the whole orchestra. And I was like, probably turning red. I was mortified. And he pointed to me and he said, Caraggio. <laughs> so do we, uh, in Italian means courage. Um, so do we have the courage as a sector? Do we have the courage as nonprofit leaders to embrace this technology responsibly, ethically, and to make the changes so we can move ahead and work in a way that is um, uh, 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 energizing for people on our staff, but is also, but also at the same time, building those great relationships with donors and then also bringing in the money. <laughs> the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.